called us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. I use this hunk of wood to illustrate reconciliation means there's something in between you and somebody you're close to. There, I mean, a, a couple might need reconciliation. They might need a counselor who would talk them through their problem and take out away what was between them. God was separated from his creation man by this thing the Bible calls sin. And so if this is God and this is all of us, what's between us and God historically is sin. But verse 18 says, God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ taking our sin out of the way so that he has reconciled us to himself. And then verse 18 says, he has given to us. Paul said it about himself, he's in there, us. And he said it to the Corinthian church, the believers in Corinth. And I think it's to us as well who are believers in this day and age. He has given to us, he's committed to us, he's put in trust to us this ministry of reconciliation. Not a religious ministry, but like the waiter in the restaurant, where you probably hope to have lunch later on today, the waiter in the restaurant will deliver to you what they prepare in the kitchen. God has prepared reconciliation for the world, but he's given to us to carry it out to the, to the table, to every, every person that needs to be a believer. The ministry of reconciliation, Paul then in verse 19 explains more thoroughly. He says, here's what it is, to wit. I'm going to explain it now. That's what to wit means. I want to help you understand. God was in Christ. Here's the Father in heaven. He made himself a man. God became a man in Jesus Christ. That's the incarnation. And then it says reconciling, if this is you and me in the whole world, reconciling the world unto himself. Because Jesus on the cross died under the weight of our sins. Not he's not going to look at us with our sin on us anymore. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. Why not? Because he put all of it on Christ on the cross. Believers and unbelievers, man, women, and child, the best in the world, the worst in the world, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He's taken them away. We have no sin to pay for. But he's committed to us the message. In verse 18, it said the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, it's called the word of reconciliation. How do people get this? They hear it or they read it. Words come to us through our eyes or through our ears. The word of reconciliation. And then verse 20, he goes on with the explanation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Jesus delivered the message while he was here, but he went away. And he said, you who are still here, you'll do greater works than I will. How is that? You're going to stay here and I'm leaving. The greater works. We lead people to trust in Jesus who took our sin. We are ambassadors for Christ. God, as though God did beseech you, beg you, plead with you by us. We're not, I'm an ambassador, I get all the social stat. No, not that kind of ambassador. The ambassador who pleads the case, as Ben Franklin did with France for the fledgling United States against the might of Great Britain. He pleads the case to give us, give us, we'll do the fighting, let us have a ship. And John Paul Jones got the Bonhomme Richard. We're ambassadors for Christ. God is begging you for us, by us. 
And here's the begging. Here's the beseeching. We pray you. We ask you. We seek to get you to do this. Instead of Christ, we're doing this. Be ye reconciled to God. Well, the previous verse said he's already reconciled the world to himself. Yes, but not the whole world receives the reconciliation just as John 3.16 says, whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 21 goes through the whole thing one more time. He made him, and the next phrase says, who knew no sin, Jesus had no sin of his own, to be sin for us. The one who knew no sin that we could be made, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the content of the ministry that Paul had that he said that the, the Corinthian church had and that we have. And so in chapter 6, he starts off by saying, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't let it be worthless. When you got saved, that's the day that you should start your part in this ministry. And he says, here's how I do it in verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. Don't be the waiter with his thumb in the water pitcher. Comes out and you don't want that. Somebody that needs some water doesn't want it out of the pitcher that you've had your thumb down in. Don't do anything offensive so the ministry's not blamed. And then he goes through this long list, and it's, this is now the third week we've been trying to get through this list, verses 4, 5, 6. We're down to, in verse 6, the word the word knowledge, if I remember right, by knowledge. On the notes, the second column, it says the dignity and glory of ministers in, of Christ in all things. Here's all things. He's got by this and he's got as this. He already has in this in the first verses we've looked at. But these are all just aspects of the ministry that Paul experienced and he said that Corinthians should experience and that we should experience. And so the next bullet point in the notes is knowledge, the second word in 2 Corinthians 6.6. 6. And you can't see this in the English language, but the first word there is pureness. In the notes you'll see, pureness was the Greek word agnoteti. Who cares? Knowledge is the Greek word gnose. That's the same word without the A stuck on the front of it. In the Greek language, A is a negative. We've got pureness, which is without defilement, and we've got gnose, knowledge. They're kind of mirrors of each other, and he's actually doing a word sound-alike thing. <laughs> but you can't see it in English, so I just threw it in there for free. I put Colossians 2.3 as a reference after knowledge, because we, we don't feel competent necessarily to know all we need to know. But do you know in Colossians chapter 2, this page 1263, if you want to look in the Schofield Bible, it talks about in verse 2, the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. It's a mysterious thing because the Father's in heaven, the Son was incarnate, has returned to heaven, he sent the Spirit. God, it's mysterious. We can't wrap our heads around. There's only one God, but there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. But then it says in verse 3, in whom the one God are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
there's that word knowledge again. You want to have knowledge for the ministry? Know God. That's where the knowledge, the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. Well, back in verse in chapter 6, going on in verse 6, after knowledge we have long-suffering. He says, that sounds awful. Some people do suffer for a long time, but the word long-suffering is more just like our regular word patience. We put up with things. Paul said, I had to put up with some things. Long-suffering. And he's, he's made reference to it quite a few times. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, 1 Corinthians 13, you know that's the love chapter, right? All about charity or agape love. 1 Corinthians 13, all about love. In verse 4, he says, charity, love, suffers long. Love does this. It's very patient. My wife loves me. She suffers long. <laughs> it's the truth. She's very patient with me. Don't laugh at that. <laughs> Your wife does too. <clears throat> and is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't vaunt itself. Love is not puffed up. I, I need to work on some of these things. I was uh, a little too full of myself. I probably still am. But when I was a teenager, I said something brilliant and acted like it was brilliant. And a, a couple years younger than me, girl in the youth ranch, looked at me and went, just like that. A little puffed up. Anyway, love is not puffed up. And it's long, long-suffering one more reference there, 1 Timothy 1.16, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. They got the page number here, it's, it's page 1224, I didn't put a bookmark in. Paul says, for this cause I obtained mercy. What did he say just before that? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Oh, for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first, Paul said, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. One of the clearest verses, we don't use it as very often, but Paul is about how do you get everlasting life? Believe in him. But I'm a bad sinner, not as bad as Paul was. I'm really the worst, I'm too bad, you can't. God can't save me. I'm too bad. You ever had somebody try to tell you that? You say, no, you're not the worst. Oh, I'm the worst. No, you're not. Paul's the worst. Who? Paul. The apostle Paul? Yes. I'm the chief of sinners. And he said that Jesus saved me, that Jesus was merciful to me. Let's anybody that's a bad sinner, and we're all bad sinners, know there's mercy in me first, Jesus Christ might show forth all long-suffering. It's a pattern for them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul understood grace because he was the chief of sinners. The chiefest of sinners. 2 Peter 3.15 2 Peter 3.15 talks about this long-suffering. Page 13.20 Peter writes, Account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And that's the truth. Even as our beloved brother Paul... Wait a minute, didn't Peter and Paul have a fuss between them? Yeah, but they got over it. 
our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto you, has written unto you the long-suffering, the patience of our Lord is salvation. Paul wrote all about salvation. Did you know that? Peter wrote it. And he, Peter goes on and says in verse 16, he wrote about salvation as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. And here's Peter's comment on Paul's letters, in which are some things hard to be understood. Got an amen for that? Some things that Paul wrote are hard. And those that are unlearned and unstable twist them around, they wrestle with them, as they also do the rest of the Bible, the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. That's sad that people do that. But I so love this verse because Peter says Paul's letters are right there on a par with the rest of the Bible. They're called scriptures, like the other scriptures that the unlearned and the unstable twist around. Long-suffering, it's a great thing to get. Sometimes, <laughs> Dr. Cameron used to tell a story about a young student that came to him in Bible college, and he said, Dr. Cameron, would you pray for me? I need to have more patience. I need patience. And Dr. Cameron said, let's get down right now. And he got down on his knees and he prayed, Lord, send this man trouble. Send this man tribulation. Send him a hard time. And the man said, whoa, whoa, wait, stop, stop. He said, well, you know tribulation works patience. And that's the truth. But there's another way to grow in long-suffering. Despisest thou, this is Romans 2, 4, despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. The goodness of God leads thee to repentance. You, know, you can get long-suffering without, without some additional tribulation. Down, since we're in Romans, down in chapter 9, several pages to your right, I think it's page 1203, chapter 9, verse 22 Paul is explaining the position of God and why he hasn't come back yet to set up his kingdom. <laughs> and he says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he'd afore prepared unto mercy. So God's holding back. Even though destruction is what is fitting for the opposers, God's holding back so he can show his mercy to as many as he can. The next word in Paul's list back here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, after long-suffering, is the word kindness. Kindness. And I've got, I do have a verse there, Acts 13, 22. It, it's... Uh, page 1167 if you want to look at it acts 13 22 this uh, is the testimony of one of the apostles paul standing up preaching to the people of israel in the synagogue and in verse 22 he's gone through a history kind of after saul it's introduced there in chapter 20, in verse 21. They wanted the king. God gave him unto them Saul, the son of Kis, the man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. 
of the Jews love it. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I found David the son of David, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. I've had three children in my family, and when they were young, we would read them appropriate age-level stories. And there was a little board book about David the king of Israel, appropriate, that we read. And I was reading this first time through it, I think, with, with my son or my daughter or both of them. And he got to the end of it, and it said, in children's words, but it said, the reason God called him a man after his own heart was because that David was kind. David was kind. Can you remember where David was kind? I can think of David the warrior, you know, Saul is saying his thousands and David is tens of thousands. But when was David kind in, a, in an amazing, amazing way? He'd taken the kingdom. He had been good buddies before he became king with a son of Saul named Jonathan. And after he became king, David said, is there anybody left of the family of Jonathan that I can show kindness to? Is there anybody left? And they said, well, there's this one fellow, a little man that's got problems. He's lame because somebody hurt him when he was a kid. He's lame in his feet. He's called Mephibosheth. And David said, get me Mephibosheth. Get him over here. And he said, Mephibosheth, I loved your father, and I want you not to have a care in the world for the rest of your life. I want you to sit at my table, eat my food. Your servants can take care of your things, and your son after you, he'll be treated by my table as well. David was kind and called kind with the way he treated his, his, the son of his enemy, his son, because he loved Jonathan. And so he was kind to Mephibosheth and to Mephibosheth's son. David, a man after mine own heart. I can't think of very many other examples of David being a man after God's own heart, but that kindness works for me. And I liked that explanation. And Paul uses the word kindness as part of the ministry. You probably know some people who are kind. I married one, and I, I'm so glad she is such a, a kind and nice person. I talk about her more than she likes, but I'm sorry, that's the truth. He said the ministry back in verse 6 of Second Corinthians chapter 6 is by the Holy Ghost. And we usually say Holy Spirit because at that, no real reason, archaic language either way, Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, it's the word pneuma, both words ghost and spirit translated from the Greek word pneuma with the word hagias on the front of it, holy ghost, hagia pneuma. And we do what we do in the ministry, Paul did, the Corinthians did, we do, because God's Holy Spirit lives inside of everyone that's a believer. And we know just a little bit about how he does that for us. I put down Galatians 5, 22 and 23 here as a reference because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is what the Holy Spirit does if you yield to him, if you allow him to direct your life. The fruit of the Spirit, this is page 1247, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Nothing is against those things. No law against any of that. That's the fruit of the Spirit. 
It's not the fruit of the Christian. The fruit of the Christian is more believers. But the fruit of the Spirit working in the Christian, these things, these are the aspects of the ministry that Paul described. We've got love, we had love. We've got long-suffering, we had that. Temperance is self-control. Some of these things are the same thing. By the Holy Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The next thing in Paul's list, and I'm sorry, I don't like lists, but this is what this is. It's a long list. By love unfeigned. By love unfeigned. I would look over at chapter 12 of the 2 Corinthians now, page 1239, verse 15. Love unfeigned. Paul said this to the Corinthians at the end, near the end of the letter. He says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. I'll give you what I've got. I'll give you all I've got. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. He said, that's how much I care for you. That's how much I love you. Sometimes we, we think we're showing our love for God by what we put in the offering each Sunday or whenever we give our giving. There was a, a child sat with her parents in church and after church they went out to a restaurant and she watched closely and she, she saw her daddy at the restaurant and he was looking for a, an appropriate tip after the meal and he couldn't find what he wanted. He got out some coins and he's putting those coins on the table and she said, no, no, daddy. Daddy, this is a restaurant. This isn't church. Ooh, he'd already taught a lesson there. He didn't realize what he'd taught. Don't tip God. Can't tell you what's appropriate, but I know um, I, have hard, I have hardly any use of coins anymore, you know. Don't carry them, because the money is much different. When I was a teenager, Janice, you'll remember this, when I first came over to this church back in the early, middle 1970s, 70, 71, 72, there was a big billboard out on Hillsborough Avenue right about where Webb Road crosses it there on the property of that church and a big picture of a $5 bill and it said, bring Abraham to church this Sunday. That was then. You've got to bring more than Abraham now to, to do the same thing. The money has changed. Anyway, we go on here. Paul said, I'd gladly spend and be spent for you, Corinthians. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Even if you just turn your back on it, you didn't think they were going to. I didn't burden you, he said. Love unfeigned. Romans chapter 12, this page 1280. Romans chapter 12 on this same point. I just pushed the wrong button. Romans chapter 12, over here. Verse 9. Paul says, Church, let love be without, and then there's a $5 word there, dissimulation. We still use a word that means that. It's hypocrisy. Don't have two faces. Do you see? You know that dissect is to cut something apart, cut it in two. And simulation is what something looks like. Dissimulation is to have two faces. Two faces. That's where that word dissimulation comes from. It meant hypocrisy. 
hypocrisy, pretending one thing. And, and that, they used that of the actors in the Greek, Greek dramas. They'd have a mask, and they'd hold the mask of their character up in front of their faith when they speak their lines. Sometimes the one actor had to do two different parts. So he had two masks. He'd have this mask, he'd do that part, and then he'd pull up the other mask and do the other part. It's short on actors. It's kind of like our choir, I guess. But, uh, he said, that's all right for the, the theater, but that's not the way your love ought to be. Don't love one way with one face and another way with another face. Love without hypocrisy. Love without hypocrisy. Love unfeigned. Going on down his list there in Second Corinthians chapter 6. Love unfeigned. Verse 7 by the word of truth. That's the thing in the ministry, isn't it? By the word of truth. We, we need this Bible. It is the, the table of contents of all that God is and how we can present it to people. Second, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. It's page 1280. Study. Study. That sounds a little bit like work. The first year the Bible College was here, we were teaching right here in this auditorium. Tyler Hamby was sitting there in about the third row, and I gave him a quiz in Bible Doctrines. First week of classes, I gave him their first quiz. And Tyler looked at that, and he looked at me, and he said, now I remember why I didn't want to go to college. <laughs> Study to show thyself the smartest kid in the room. No. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. You don't get, say, well, this is what, I guess it's like this, you know. No. You know what the word is and you spell it out. Rightly dividing the word of truth. You know some, I guess Dr. Arnold and Dr. Hudson both had a message that said, things that are different are not alike. And there's a whole lot of things that are not the same. The church is not the same as the kingdom. The church is not the same as Israel. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Grace is not the same as works. Works are not the same as grace. They can't be in the same boat together. We're saved by grace. We earn rewards by works. They're both good things, but they don't do the same thing. You study, that's works. If you're saved, you study to show yourself approved unto God. Not so you can get in the family of God, but to be rewarded a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're useful if you study. God wants you to study his word. There's so many other scriptures we could have gone to, but going on with Paul's list here in 2 Corinthians 6, by the word of truth, verse 7, by the power of God. Oh, we recite every Sunday morning, the Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That ought to be familiar. What's the power of God? The gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God. It's not my wonderful knowledge of all the things that make the Bible true. It's not my wonderful presentation of the facts of science that are found true in the Bible or the prophecies. It's not... It's the power of God is the good news. The gospel means good news. Jesus died for me. Christ died for me. Christ died for my sins. He buried, he rose again. 
He gives the gift of eternal life to anybody that does no more than believe in him. This is the ministry of reconciliation that Paul spells out in the end of chapter 5. That's the power of God. It's the gospel. Now, when you get past verse 7 and get to... I'm actually in the middle of verse 7 where it says, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, Paul got tired of saying this same word, an, which is usually translated in, and he switched over to dia, which is usually translated through. <laughs> so you know, he, he just changed the introductory preposition. By the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Now, um, how many of you are right-handed? That's that one. <laughs> if you're right-handed and you're going to battle, what do you put in your right hand? Your sword, your pistol, your you, the, the offensive weapon goes in the, the good hand. You need to be able to aim, you need to be able to powerfully use a sword. The offensive weapon goes in the right hand. The sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, Verse 17 has the armor of the Christian, page 1255, and all of it is defensive. It's armor to protect you until you get to verse 17 and says, take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the Word of truth, the power of God, the armor of righteousness on the right hand. What do you have in your right hand? It'll be the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. What do you have in your left hand if you're going to battle? you got armor that you wear, but what do you have on your left hand if you're going to battle with a sword? Or if you're on the SWAT team, either way, they still use these. You have a shield. On your left arm you have a shield, and you duck in behind it, and you reach out around it, and you shoot, or you swipe with a sword. On the left hand, the defensive weapon, the rest of the things in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6 are all about the armor that's on the body. It mentions the shield of faith, the shield of faith in verse 16. Back in chapter 4 of Ephesians, it talked, it mentions in verse 16, no it doesn't. I got the reference wrong. There's another mention, I think, I'm just, I think it was just supposed to be 616. That's a mistake. If you want to fix the mistake, you change Ephesians 4.16 to Ephesians 6.16, and you'll, you'll be smarter than I was. All right. Continuing on with the two, the two weapons that are mentioned here, the armor of righteousness on the right hand, the sword on the left hand, the shield. He says, let's go. Let's go with the word of God, the armor of righteousness on the right hand, and on the left, we've got both sides covered. Nothing on the back does he mention. We're not supposed to be turning our back to the battle. And then he gets into some contrasts from verse 8 on, actually all the way to the end of the passage in verse, verse 10. Contrasts. He says, by honor, yea, Paul, and dishonor, boo, Paul. <laughs> they throw rocks and worse. By honor and dishonor. By evil report and good report. Really? Yeah, Paul got some evil reports. I don't know if you know that. Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter of Hebrews, he says to the 
believers, he addresses the Jewish believers. This is, I think, the specific letter that Peter referred to in 2 Peter chapter 3 we looked at. He says, now for these believers, compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, the men of faith of chapter, men and women of faith of chapter 11, he says, let us go forth. We'll find somebody else to go first, second, and third. Let us, no, no, that's wrong. Let us go out. Let's go forth outside our little camp, outside our little safe place. Let us go forth. Go to the football game. Go to the fair. Go to Plant City for the Strawberry Festival. Go forth. Louis will go. Let us go forth to him. What? Jesus is out there, outside the camp. What is that? When he suffered, in verse 12 it says, Jesus, that he could sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. I don't know, Jesse said it wasn't on a hill. Whether it's on a hill far away or if it's next to the road far away, Jesus suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. It says so right here, outside the gate. If you go visit in Jerusalem, you'll know that the, the place they call the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is inside the city walls of Jerusalem. That was a mistake made by Constantine's mother the, back in the 4th century. She went to Jerusalem and, and of course, Whoever she was listening to gave her directions. This is the place where this happened. This is the place where this happened. And since she told them it was from God, they put the nameplate on there and made churches in all those places. Not necessarily the right places. Let us go forth outside. That's where Jesus is. What did he say in the end of Matthew in the Great Commission? Lo, I am with you always. Let's go where he is. Let's not hide. Gone out there and do what? Bearing his reproach. Abraham went away from what everything he knew because God said, you go. I'll tell you where later. You just go. And this doesn't say we'll go to this place or just outside, away from the safe place, bearing his reproach. Bearing his reproach, yeah. Let's go outside by evil report and by good report paul had some good report too paul had some good report as well by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true deceivers why would we want to paul got called a deceiver he did by the way these contrasts from this point on they use another word instead of dia they use as, has, as. In, in uh, John 7, this is page 1124, it says the Jews sought him at this feast. His brother had gone up. He went up secretly, the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the earlier part of the feast, he didn't show himself publicly. Verse 12 says there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he deceives the people. And Paul got called by that same name. Nobody spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Well, the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And they were marvelous things he taught. They marveled at him, saying, how did he know letters? He never went to the, uh, the uh, Pharisee school. How does he know the Bible? Jesus was called 
a deceiver, a deceiver. Matthew 26, Matthew 26, page 1040. Before the cross, but only a little. Verse 73, boy, those are long chapters. Jesus has been arrested. Peter is kind of following along. He's outside the high priest's palace. Peter sat outside, verse 69, and a damsel, a little girl came to him, looked at Peter, big old fisherman. Little girl said, thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth. And he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. He was gone out into the porch because it was getting hot in there. <laughs> Another maid saw him. Another little girl said unto them that were there, this, this fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath. He cussed at her. <laughs> I do not know the man. <laughs> After a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech brayeth thee. Thy speech bereath thee. He got a report of being one with Jesus. He didn't handle it well. He, got, he began to curse and swear and said, I don't know the man. And he used emphatic words to say it. I know not the man. Blankety blank, blank, blank. Peter. I'm not sure why I had that reference there. I just had it. <laughs> and yet, True. In that place we were in John chapter 7, verse 12, we were just a few verses down the page. Jesus, Jesus said, you can know that I'm speaking the truth. Verse 16, my teaching, my doctrine, it's not mine, it's his that sent me, the Father sent me. If any man will do his will, you want to do what God wants, well, you know the doctrine, whether I speak it be of God or whether I just making stuff up. He that speaketh of himself, like you're accusing me of, he's seeking his own glory. That's not me. Jesus said, he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the glory of the Father, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus was true. Paul was telling the truth, yet he was accused of being a deceiver. He was unknown, and he says, yet well-known. Unknown and yet well-known. In verse 9, unknown and yet well-known. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 9, is page uh, 1215. 1 Corinthians 4. Paul said this, he said, I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, as it were, appointed to death. We're made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. You, you, Corinthians, you're wise. We're weak. You're strong. You're honorable. We're despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst are naked and buffeted, beaten up, have no certain dwelling place, and labor. We got to work, working with our own hands. When we're cussed, being reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we just take it. Being defamed, we, we just plead, we entreat. 
We are made as the filth of the world and the offscouring of all things unto this day. He says, I'm not writing these things to you to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Unknown, well-known, deceivers and true, well-known. One last passage, Galatians chapter 1, verse 22 to 24. It's page 1258, Galatians 1. He said this, he says, I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they heard he which persecuted us in time past now preaches the face which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. We're running out of clock time. It happens in football games. It happens in church. And I think that we're supposed to take a moment here before we're not quite through this list, but we're so close. We'll finish it next week and be happy. But going back again, this passage was all keyed on the end of chapter 5, the ministry of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and given to us the ministry of reconciliation. What was it? God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and he's committed to us who have believed the word of reconciliation. God has taken the sin on himself, on Jesus. We pray you in Christ's stead. We pray you, if you're here and haven't believed in Christ, we pray you. If you're listening now or later online, we pray you in Christ's stead. The sin thing has been taken care of. Just for a moment, my sin was upside down. My sin is paid for. Your sin is paid for. Even if you've never believed in Jesus, your sin, it says he's not imputing your trespasses unto them in verse 19. But we have to beg you in Christ's stead. This reconciliation, paying for sin that God did, you need to be reconciled to God. How do you do that? You believe in Jesus Christ. If the work is done. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, covered in the very righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for your word. And I'll clear that, that one most important truth is Christ died for my sins. How clear it is that the only thing any person can ever do and only can do at one time is believe in Jesus. And he gives the gift of his righteousness. He gives the gift of salvation. He gives the gift of eternal life to each and every one that puts their faith in him. We pray that anyone hearing this that doesn't understand that would read those verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21, John 3.16. 2 Corinthians 5.21, John 3.16. 2 Corinthians 5.21, John 3.16. Until they get it, there's nothing to do except understand if they thought they could be good, they need to change their mind. If they thought Jesus was just a good example, they need to change their mind. 
If they thought God was somebody they could please by offering to him, they need to change their mind. And changing their mind, they need to believe in Jesus who offers salvation. Father, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.